Our sermon text is Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask and invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. Give ear to the reading of God's word. It says, John writes, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, You've probably noticed that we're getting towards the home stretch of the book of Revelation. It's hard to believe we've gotten this far already. seems like we just started it a few months ago, and here we are, only a few more chapters to go. Um, throughout the book, we've seen, you know, we've, we've mentioned before, I've noted a couple times or so, that as you go through Revelation, it's not a linear chronology from chapter 1 to chapter 22, that it's a cyclical book. A lot of the book is is showing over and over again from kind of different perspectives, different angles, so to speak, the same cycles of judgments of God throughout history, culminating in the final judgment when Christ returns. And we're coming to that last cycle. We're in the middle of that last cycle of judgments here in the last few chapters of the book. And by way of review, since it's been a few weeks since we looked at this book, in chapter 17 through 18, the last uh, couple chapters we looked at, there, John, uh, the Apostle John, uh, told us of these visions he was given uh, of, of the destruction, the judgment of Babylon. Babylon, the King James, or New King James, in chapter 17, verse 1, calls her the great harlot, or the great prostitute. In those chapters, her destruction by God's judgment is foretold, and it's celebrated. Her judgment, God's judgment upon her is celebrated, and that great last act of God's judgment upon her was celebrated, and why is that? That may strike us as odd in our day. We might think that seems like a strange thing to be excited and happy about. Why was God's just judgment on her celebrated? It was celebrated because of her great wickedness and also because of the way that she persecuted the church. What does it say in in Revelation 17, 6? It says that she had become, quote, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Seen in that, in that light, it should be no surprise to us that God's people in heaven 
in these visions are seen celebrating and even crying out hallelujah uh, to God for his judgment upon her. This Babylon, this mystery of Babylon, was at the center of all the violent persecution of the Christians in the first century. And so God's just judgment upon her, whether you see her as Rome or as Jerusalem, it almost doesn't matter. Either way, God judged and defended his people. And it was his judgment was really in answer to the prayers of God's people. Earlier in the book in chapter 6, the, the martyrs under the, under, the, under the altar, what did they do? They were, pry, they were praying and crying out to God, How long, O Lord, will you avenge our blood? Well, this, this judgment upon Babylon was God's answer in his time to those, those prayers. And so God's people in heaven and even the angels themselves were singing hallelujah about God's just judgment. Now, it's, it's fitting in chapter 18, which we looked at last time, that God's people, in light of that judgment that was, that was sure to come, it hadn't happened yet, but it was sure to come in short uh, order, that God gave two commands to his people regarding that judgment that was to come back in chapter 18. The first one in chapter 18, verse 4, is he commands them, if you remember that, if you were here for that sermon, he tells them, come out of her. In other words, judgment's coming, get out now. And the reason they were to come out of her was so that they would not share in her sins and that they would not share in her punishments for those sins. It's a call to repentance, it's a call to holiness. I think that's a message that the church in our day desperately needs to hear and heed as well. Do we not see many churches, many professing Christians conforming more and more to the world around us in many different ways? How many are there in our churches, even in our pulpits, who tolerate and celebrate kinds of immorality that God uh, calls abominations? They celebrate immorality and perversion of all kinds and, and name the name of Christ while they do it. How many in our pulpits are saying peace, peace, where there is no peace? As Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 6.14, we have many, many preachers saying peace, peace. They're giving a false peace to people that are not truly at peace with God. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 6.7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not what? God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. God is not going to be mocked here or anywhere else at any time. The second thing in chapter 18 that God's people were exhorted and and commanded to do in light of Babylon's coming destruction was to rejoice. Now, it hadn't happened yet, but they're commanded in, in Revelation 18, verse 20, to rejoice at God's just judgments. Uh, on the enemies of Christ and the enemies of his church. And wh- why is that? Again, that may seem like a, like a strange thing for us to think about. Why are they and why are we called to rejoice over those things? It's because this was an outworking of God's holy and just judgment. God is not embarrassed by his judgment. We should not be embarrassed or act like we're embarrassed at God's judgments. They are holy and righteous and, and true and good. But not only that, but his judgments in this case, and in many cases, are for the benefit of his church. It's an example of God defending his church. That's why we are to rejoice over it. That's why John was told in Revelation 18.20 that the saints were to quote, they were to rejoice over her. Why? For God has given judgment for you against her. It was for the benefit of his people that he was judging Babylon. Remember the book of Exodus the same kind of thing is going on there. God, 
God struck down with a mighty hand Pharaoh and his armies. He, he, he sent plagues through Moses' hand upon the mighty land of Egypt. He was judging Egypt, but at the same time in judging Egypt, what was he doing at the same time for his own people? Rescuing them from Egypt by the means of that judgment. It's the same kind of a thing going on in these chapters in Revelation. Now, that rejoicing over the judgment and destruction of Babylon continues into our chapter this morning, into chapter 19. In fact, uh, there's a hallelujah chorus here in Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. You might know that in Handel's Messiah, that that uh, great song, the great thing that we hear every Christmas seemingly somewhere, and the most famous part of that, I think, is probably uh, the hallelujah chorus. It's a part that we, as soon as we hear it, you're, you kind of stand up and you kind of, Gets your blood going, and uh, but that that Hallelujah chorus, a great part of that is based on Revelation nineteen six. I won't sing it for the sake of mercy upon your ears, but in that Hallelujah chorus, it says, "It says for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth," and then it refrains Hallelujah four different times, repeats that. It's based on the King James version of verse six, which almost word for word, "Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth." It's from our chapter. And you maybe, maybe you've heard that chorus a million times every Christmas and never put it together that one, it's from Revelation, and two, it's in regard to God's judgments in history. It's in regards to God's judgment and delivering his people through that, that judgment. The Lord God omnipotent shows that he reigns, in particular in our chapter, by judging the enemies of his people, in particular Babylon in that day. The Hallelujah Chorus in our text here in chapter 19 shows us that God is to be praised for at least two things, lots of things, but two particular things in our text. The first is his just judgment upon Babylon, the enemy of his people. The second is a a much different thing, but it's related. The second thing that we are to praise God for and sing Hallelujah to him for is the wedding supper of the Lamb. The former is the celebration and destruction of, uh, the celebration of the destruction of a harlot, the great harlot. The latter is a celebration of the pure bride of Christ. You see the contrast that's being drawn here in the chapter. You have the harlot being destroyed, and you have the bride of Christ in pure white linen being celebrated, and Christ himself being celebrated at that wedding. So let's look at those two things this morning from our text. The first thing that, that John talks about and hears in our text is that hallelujah chorus in heaven and that hallelujah chorus in heaven is praising God for his power in judgment. Look at verses 1 and 2. John says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Now that word hallelujah, you might know, is, is carried over from the Hebrew. The Greek in, in Revelation is basically a, a transliteration of the Hebrew word hallelujah. And what does that word mean? What does that Hebrew word mean? It means praise the Lord. So when you see praise the Lord, it's that's what hallelujah means. If you never knew that before, that's what you're saying when you say hallelujah. You're saying praise the Lord. Now notice again what the Lord is being praised for here in our, in our text. Verse 2, his judgments. His judgments are true and just. God's just judgment upon the wicked, especially those who persecuted his church, he's being praised for that. And remember, who is his church in our text? 
What what is the analogy or the metaphor that's used of the church here later in this in, in our text? The bride of Christ. I don't know about you, but if, if someone, if you're a married man and somebody were to accost your wife, there'd be something wrong with you if you didn't stand up and defend your wife, wouldn't there? Well, God is much better than we are in, the, in that in that regard. His judgment upon Babylon is his vengeance on Babylon for, quote, the blood of his servants in verse 2. I think if you see, see it in that light, you can see that God's just judgment upon the wicked is really an expression of his great love for his people. You know, there are many uh, throughout history, not just in our day. I'm always saying in our day, it's always been this way. People are always trying to put God's love and God's just judgment as if they are at odds with each other. They're not. There was a book written by an apostate man named Rob Bell, I don't know how many, a couple years ago or so, called Love Wins. No, Revelation 19 is Love Wins. God's love for his people, part of that is expressed through his judgment on those who would harm the apple of his eye. God's wrath and his love are not at odds at all. None of God's attributes are at odds with each other in any way, shape, or form. Now, we who are Christ's people in the church, I think from texts like this, they teach us that we are to take great comfort from God's just judgments. We are to take great comfort from his judgments. We might, we might not understand his judgments. We might not understand why does God take so long, and sometimes we might be amazed at God's just judgments, at their, at you know how, how strong, how violent they might seem in some ways. We might not understand them, but we should take great comfort from them. We might not understand them these, day, these things right now in this life, but one day you and I will be shouting God's praise not just for our salvation, but also for his judge, just judgment of the wicked. And those two things are really, in some ways, two sides of one coin. That's the part I think we don't often understand, that his judgments are very often an expression of his great love and care for his people, the objects of his grace and mercy. We also praise the Lord in our text here for because what? It says salvation, verse 1, salvation and glory and power belong to our God and because his judgments are true and just. Think about this. No more injustice. We don't get to see much actual justice in this world. No more. Imagine, will that not be a great cause for praise one day to see justice actually being done? Just judgments. No more people uh, getting away with things they shouldn't get away with. No more people being convicted of things they shouldn't be convicted of. Actual justice being done. What, what grieves you more than those things happening in this life? How many things, can, don't, don't shout them out right now, but how many things can you think of in the news or in your own personal lives and people that you know, where you see something happen and you're, that's not right. It grieves your heart. One day that stuff will all be made right at the return of Christ and his just judgments. Do, you, do we not rejoice over the righteous judgments as, as rare as they seem to be in this life? Are we not grieved when we see so many unjust judgments in this life? Do we not grieve when you see the wicked prospering and you see the godly suffering? Remember the psalmist in Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms. What is, remember Psalm 73, what was the problem that the psalmist had in Psalm 73? In verse 1, he starts off kind of talking to himself. You ever do that? He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's saying, I know this is the case. But it doesn't feel like it sometimes, does it? 
Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, verse 1. But then he says his feet had almost stumbled. Why? Because he was, quote, envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. It wasn't right. And it grieved him and almost caused him to stumble. What's he saying? I almost gave up on it. I almost said, you know what? If that's what it takes to prosper, and following God seems to be the opposite of prospering sometimes, maybe I should just give up and do what they do. Maybe I should stop serving the Lord in my generation. But what changed in the middle of the psalm? And he writes this for our benefit. In verse 17, he said that all changed when he, quote, went into the sanctuary of God and discerned their end. In other words, he had a short-sighted view of things at first. And then he looked at the end of the story. When, when Christ shall return and justice shall reign and God's people will be rewarded and his just judgment will be poured out on his enemies. It was in the midst of worship in God's house when he was reminded of real justice and God's judgment that awaits the wicked. That should be the case for us in some ways too. When you come to church every Sunday, it's a reordering, it's, it's kind of a, a refocusing, it should be, on the way things are going to be for us one day. You know, throughout the week, maybe you get beat up in different ways and you see things that you don't, you, you know shouldn't be and you're upset about certain things and uh, you see the, the wicked prospering and you wonder sometimes if it's worth it to serve the Lord. And then we come to meet for worship and we're kind of recentered again. We're reminded of the eternal truths of God's word, including his rewards for his people and the judgment that awaits the unrepentant. And not only that, the psalmist doesn't just say in Psalm 73, then I remembered how bad they're going to have it, and I was happy. That's not the end of the psalm, right? He, towards the end of the psalm in verses 23 and 24, he remembers and reminds himself, like we need to do, uh, that by the grace of God, he enjoyed peace with God, and he enjoyed unbroken fellowship forever with God. In verses 23 and 24, he says, nevertheless, like he talked about the wicked, now he talks about himself by God's grace, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And then he says, and afterward you will receive me to glory. In other words, in a sense, he went to church and he realized the end of the wicked and also realized the end of himself. What awaits him? What awaits you if you're a believer in Christ is God receiving you by his grace in Christ, receiving you into glory one day. Glory is not now. Anybody think they're in glory now? This church is just so good. No. Uh, you're, not in glory, you're not in glory now, but one day you will be, and we can't imagine what that's like, but one day. That's your hope if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that God is with you at all times in this life and afterward. He will receive you into glory because of his grace toward you in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, we must trust the just judgment of God. Trust the just judgment of God that he will make all things right one day. Think of the words of Abraham uh, to God back in Genesis 18 before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's a true statement. I know it's a question. The judge of all the earth shall do right. We have to trust that God knows what he's doing. And his just judgments will be in his time, not necessarily in our time, the way that we might prefer. But he will make all things right, and the just judge of the earth shall do what is what is right. We have to trust in God's just judgment. The second thing, we must pray for the just judgment of God and for his will to be done in gathering and defending his church. 
And one of the things that that means is we must pray for the suffering and persecuted church wherever they may be. We prayed for our brothers and sisters in the church in China this morning. I hope you will continue to do that as well as pray for others that you might know of in certain places that are being persecuted openly right now. We pray, we should pray for our brothers and sisters in, in, in Christ who are in places like China that are being violently persecuted for the faith by the atheistic communist governments there. Churches, as we've said this morning, have, you know, have been literally demolished. They have been tearing down church buildings. They have been imprisoning ministers of the gospel and torturing them in some cases. All oh, And why do they do that? They don't like the competition. If somebody serves God and God is their ultimate authority, people that want to be the ultimate authority don't take that very kindly. But they do all these things because those who are in power hate God. And they hate his Christ and they hate anybody who would swear allegiance to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But what is Psalm 2? We have to think about that Psalm a lot. The, the Lord, who, He who sits in the heavens, what does he do at their attempts to overthrow him? He laughs. He holds them in derision. And shall not our God, who is the just judge of all the earth, shall he not do right? And so we should pray for Christ's kingdom to come more and more, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we should pray that Christ would gather, build, and defend his church, however he may see fit to do that, and whenever and in what time he sees fit to do that. And one, one day you will all rejoice over God's just judgments on this earth. And God, our God, will be glorified in his just judgments. All of heaven, you know, this, this is a vision in Revelation 19, but in some sense it's also a prophetic picture of what's going to happen. In heaven we're all going to be praising God for his grace and also praising God for his just judgments and his holiness. Well, that brings us to the second thing that we are to praise God for in our text, and that is, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at verses 6 through 8. John says there, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, another great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Imagine how loud this must have seemed. Crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what are the reasons given in these verses why God is to be praised and why we are to sing hallelujah and shout that out? First, it's in the hallelujah chorus, right? For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Does God's almighty power and sovereignty not give you great peace in this world of sin and misery? And it's one of the many reasons, I uh, wish there was a different word for this, but it's one of the many reasons I'm glad I'm a Calvinist. God is sovereignly in control over all things. He is not sitting in heaven, sitting on his hands, twiddling his thumbs and crossing his fingers and hoping things work out some way. He is in charge of all things. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time long before it comes the past, does his sovereign power and authority not give you great comfort and peace throughout the things that you go through in this life? Does the fact that or if you you know if you are in Christ this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, you can call the one true living God, not just God, but your God, and that your God is the one who is the Almighty who reigns. Does that not give you great peace and comfort? 
It should. We above all people have reason to rejoice and exult and give glory to our God, no matter what's happening in our lives. For our God reigns, and one day again He will make all things right. Not only that, but while the wicked and the unrepentant have nothing but judgment to look forward to, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have something so great to look forward to that it defies description. And in our chapter, in our text here, it's described as a wedding feast, as kind of a wedding reception, so to speak. Now think about this. Is there a more happy occasion on this earth than a wedding reception? A wedding and the reception following it. Normally that's the greatest thing, the happiest thing. Maybe the birth of a child might, might rival that in some regard. But, you know, when, when you, have you ever attended a wedding of a close loved one that you just couldn't wait for it to come to pass? Sometimes you get an invitation and you think, oh, we got things to do. But sometimes you get that one and you can't wait to go. Somebody, a relative or a friend that you've, you've been waiting for them to find the right person, for God to bring the right person into their life. And then you get the invitation and you got your calendar circled. You can't wait. The couple can't remember your own wedding. You can't wait. You might have been nervous. You might have been a little freaked out. But you couldn't wait for it to come uh, to pass, to come to be. Well, there, there could be no more intimate analogy of the relationship of God, his bond of love between Christ and his people, than a marriage. And that's the picture that the, the Bible uses over and over again, and it's the picture used of our coming to heaven one day. It's the great wedding supper, marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, that analogy is used all through Scripture. This, I, I, I thought about trying to list them, and I, I gave up on it. You know, even even in some of the practical application in some of the epistles in the New Testament, think of Ephesians chapter 5. It's the passage that pastors fear to, to preach on, right? The Apostle Paul, what, what does Paul base his instructions for husbands and wives in marriage? What does he base it on? How does he motivate husbands and wives to do what they're supposed to do? He bases it on the fact that marriage is an analogy. It's a picture of Christ and his church. How are wives in Ephesians 5? How are wives to submit to their husbands? Verse 22, as to the Lord. Why are wives to submit to their husbands? He says in, in Ephesians 5, 23 to 24, here it is. For the husband is the head of the wife, but he doesn't stop there, does he? He gives the reason for it. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What's the reason? It really has little to do with the husband at all. It's He is a, a picture, an analogy, if you will, of Christ as the head of his church. And then the husbands. How and why are we husbands to love our wives? We are to do so, Paul says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And then Paul, to sum it up, says he calls marriage a profound mystery. All the husbands say, yes, that's a profound mystery. <laughs> he, he calls marriage a profound mystery and says that it refers, verse 32, it refers to Christ and to the church. Marriage, the, I mean, Adam and Eve, God joining them together, was the first picture of the gospel in the Bible. Before the fall. And Paul says that marriage refers to, it's a picture of Christ and the church. So the next time you think about a wedding or attend a wedding, the next time you break out your wedding album and look through the pictures, be happy and look and think about those things, but be reminded of this passage. Be reminded of what awaits you in heaven as the marriage supper 
of the Lamb and how we will praise God one day for His great grace and mercy towards us at that time. And, and we, we as the church, we are the bride of Christ, verse 7. And what does any bride do when she sees her wedding day approaching? Besides freak out. <laughs> what, what, what do brides do as the wedding is getting... On the wedding day, what do they do? They get ready for the wedding. They get dressed. They get the dress on. She gets ready for her wedding day. And what do you see in verses 7 through 8? The same thing. The bride, which is us, getting ready for the wedding. John heard a voice like that of a great multitude there saying, quote, For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's the church, his bride has made herself ready. How has she made herself ready? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. A white wedding. That's what this, this is the ultimate white wedding. You know, I don't know if they still have that show, Say Yes to the Dress. Well, it's got nothing on, on this bride's wedding ground. And what, what are, what is the fine linen, bright and pure? John says in verse 8 that the wedding dress, so to speak, the fine linen, bright and pure is the righteous deeds of the saints. Our good works done out of gratitude for our salvation in Christ. In a sense, that's our wedding gown. That's what we get to wear uh, to, to this wedding, to this wedding supper. Now, this is not about justification. This is not teaching salvation by works. This is not teaching anything like that. Your good works as a Christian, if you're a believer this morning, your good works play no part in your right standing before a holy God. Your good works, your acts of obedience... To Christ are in no way the ground or basis for your justification. We are all sinners, and the only way that sinners can be justified is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that's it. The only righteousness that you can have, that you could wear, so to speak, that will get you into the door of heaven, is that of Christ. Only His perfect, spotless righteousness can cover your sin and iniquity so that your sins are fully forgiven and that God can accept you as righteous in his sight. Not your own good works, but we're not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. There's a difference, a very important distinction. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Commit this one to memory. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And then he says what? Not a result of works. Are you saved by works? No, not a result of works or not by works, so that no one may boast. When you're in heaven, you're not going to be saying, well, it's a good thing I did X, Y, and Z, and -and so-and-so didn't do as good as me. No, you're not saved by works, and you're not going to have anything to boast of except the Lord. Not by works so that no one may boast. And he says this in verse 10. We always forget verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right there in the text. We're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works, for the purpose of you doing good works. And then he even adds, which God prepared beforehand. We don't even get the credit for that. God prepared them beforehand that we might walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith, not a result of works, We are a new creation in Christ and have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we are to walk in them even as God prepared them in advance for us to do. Now, that's even in our text. What does it say in verse 8? It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Even that is a gift. 
You know, we actually sang this morning in that great hymn by Top Lady, uh, How Vast the Benefits Divine. Listen to verse 2, which you sang. You sang this theology to yourself this morning. To thee, O Lord, alone is due all glory and renown. Ought to ourselves we dare not take or rob thee of thy crown. Thou wast thyself our surety in God's redemption plan. In thee this grace was given long ere before the world began. Oh, you know, forgive me, it's verse 1. I was like, you, just, you need to hear this verse 2 for some reason. He says, How vast the benefits divine, verse 1, which we in Christ possess. We are redeemed from sin and shame and called to holiness. Tis not for works that we have done, these all to him we owe. But he of his electing love and salvation, uh, his salvation doth bestow. Not our works that we have done, these all to him we owe. Even your good works, who gets the credit for them? Who gets the glory for your, your good works and your acts of obedience? God does, because God worked that in you to begin with. You can't be saved by something like that, because God gave that to you. He gave you both your justification in Christ as well as your sanctification. Now, sanctification, your good works and all these things, even that's a gift of God. Our, our shorter catechism says in question 35, it says that your sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It takes effort on your part, but it's the work of God's free grace in you throughout your life. And look at the promise of, of blessing in our text. Think about this. How are you getting ready for your wedding day? As a believer in Christ, how, what is the main way that we get dressed up for our wedding? According to this verse 8. Good works. Serving our Savior in our generation. That is how we get ready for the wedding. That's how we get the dress on, so to speak, so that we're ready for that great day. Walk in good works to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now look look at the promise of blessing that closes our text in verse 9. It says, John writes, And the angel said to me, Write this. You know, take, take a memo. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Everything here is the true words of God, but it's as if he wants to put an exclamation point here. He wants this part to, to jump off the page. Everything else we read might have jumped off the page, but verse 9 it's like God took a highlighter. Maybe you did this in your own Bible, take a highlighter. That's kind of what he's doing. Take, take this down. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Blessing is promised to all those who are invited to that great marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, it's almost like one, one analogy doesn't do it justice. It's like we're the bride and we're also the guests at this great wedding reception. And so I asked this morning... Are you invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb? Do you know that you are invited, that you are a welcome guest, and even the maid of the, the, the bride herself at the wedding supper of the Lamb? You can know that you are. He doesn't, you know, this text doesn't tell us to cross your fingers and sort of, I guess, and hope and just maybe. He wants you to know that you've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And how do you know if you are? If you are in Jesus Christ by faith, this is talking about you. You have a signed, sealed, and delivered invite to this wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, according to our text, I think it's telling us you will either be a part of that great judgment of God upon the unrepentant on that last day, or you will be a part of that great marriage supper of the Lamb. May you be a part of that great hallelujah chorus in heaven by the grace of God 
and know that you have been invited to the supper of the Lamb by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's, let's pray.